The scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 2, starting in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more now than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teachings, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Tyre, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule over them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my Father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of God. Well, good morning to you, those of you who are here, and also good morning to those of you who are watching uh, online. We're glad you came to be with us in worship, and uh, we're looking forward to uh, seeing you all again eventually. That'll be a great day. I want to begin this morning by asking you to remember your hometown. Maybe you had more than one hometown, But remember your hometown for a moment and answer this question, not necessarily out loud. Answer this question, what was your hometown known for? What was its chief characteristic? If you said it out loud, it might evoke some laughter. But anyway, you know famous towns are often known for certain things. So let's do a name association. Pittsburgh. Steel. Detroit. Yeah, Motown, automobiles, St. Louis, an arch which represents the gateway to the West, might be known for other things. Some people would say if they're from St. Louis, town, that's not all we're known for. Uh, yeah. How about Las Vegas? Gambling. What about Winston-Salem? Cigarettes. How about that? Would you love to... Have that as your designation, the cigarette capital of the world. It's interesting, isn't it, to do that play on words and understand how people's towns have been known. But there's something important about knowing a location. So when we study history or we study the Bible, which is in large part history, we wonder about the particular location where a letter was written. And on this occasion, we're talking about a town called Thyatira. 
So we ask questions about these towns. What motivates them? How do they make their decisions? How do they think? Right now in this current contemporary culture we're living in, you might ask the question, how do they vote? (laughs) How do they speak? What kind of accent do they have? I love trying to predict accents, where people come from, just by listening to them for a few sentences. Um, One of the accents, it's not really an accent, it's kind of a way of saying things. Things I remember picking up when I was uh, in high school because I had a lot of friends who were from Pennsylvania. They said things like this, going to town. It's like they lifted it up at the end. I would say, are you going to town? They would say, going to town. Or how about Wisconsin? Oh, yeah. That's all I need to say. Oh, that's Wisconsin, right? There's accents. I have no idea what, what the accents accent in Thyatira was, but I do know what they were famous for, and that was their trade guilds. So what's a trade guild? Well, consider it to be a club or an organization that is established for the purpose of enhancing the trade that you happen to be a part of. Let's say you were a stone cutter, or you were a wood carver, or you were a garment maker. You'd be a part of a trade guild, a particular trade guild, because in this, which was primarily known for its bonds and copper. In this town, there were all kinds of trades. As a matter of fact, it was a busy town. It was on a route between two other major cities that we've talked about or will talk about in the future. So this trade trade guild in Thyatira was very important, but one of the characteristics of the trade guilds, and everyone would have known this, is that in trade guilds, they had gatherings where they invoked the blessing of other gods, maybe even a god of a particular trade guild. They would actually have ceremonies. They would have feasts in which they dedicated their food to this God and ask for the God's blessing. You can see immediately that's going to be a problem for Christians. If you're a stone cutter, a woodworker, a garment sewing person, you've got to be a part of a trade guild, but you have this conflict about their gatherings. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament routinely tells us about one major sin. The one major sin we hear about in the Old Testament more than any other is idolatry. And you can see how this fits with trade guilds. The trade guild was necessary for business. And some people understood this very well. And into that Christian community comes or existed a person who argued that the trade guilds were okay. Her name, Jezebel. Now, you know the name Jezebel from the Old Testament. She's a famous queen of a famous king in Israel. And what she's famous for is leading the people of Israel to other gods. Remember the huge conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal and, of course, Jezebel? That's the backstory. But it's unlikely there's anybody in that church named Jezebel, right? No Christian or Jewish believer would ever have named their kid Jezebel. It'd be kind of like naming your kid Hitler today, right? You'd never do that. 
So what the angel to the church at Thyatira is saying, there's somebody among you who's playing the part of Jezebel. Remember that story, my friends? Jezebel led the people away from God. And the angel to the church says, there's two primary things that are going on in the teaching of your Jezebel. The first one is fornication. The second one is worship of idols. There's two things going on in your community. First, the idea of fornication. Fornication, sexual immorality, was rampant in the Roman Empire. You think it's bad in our country or in our world? Just whatever you think of immorality in our society, do a times ten beside it. And that's the Roman Empire. We're not even close to being as immoral in terms of sexuality as they were. It was everywhere. So he speaks about fornication and sexual immorality. But here's the thing. Just like all the other images, most of the other images in the book of Revelation, they're images to point to some other reality. Immorality is bad, but that's not the main point here. The main point, our angel to the church of Thyra, Tyra is arguing, is that You're being led into fornication the way Jezebel led the people of Israel into fornication. Now, we've got no historical record at all that Jezebel was a person who was involved in sexual immorality, who was cheating on her husband king. What we do know is she was luring people to worship other gods. So fornication is just that not being singularly devoted to God, but dividing up your soul and giving your heart, your affections, also to another. In other words, Jezebel apparently is saying to this group of people, you can have it both ways. You can have your big God, the one revealed in Jesus Christ, and then you can have your little gods. Just go ahead and go to the trade guild ceremonies and offer up meat to those gods and ask for their blessing. You can have both. Fornication was a big part of it, and eating food to idols was a big part of it. Now, I want you to remember, if you do remember, some of the things that were said by the Apostle Paul on the subject in, in, in the church to Corinth. The Apostle Paul talked about meat that was sacrificed to idols, These Christians lived in the real world, and it was nearly impossible, probably next to impossible, to go to the market and pick up anything from the market that wasn't sacrificed to a god. And some people in Corinth say, you can't eat that food. And you know what Paul said? He said, don't worry about it. Really? Yeah, don't worry about it. You don't know who it's been sacrificed to, but it doesn't matter. Because other gods or other idols, are no gods at all. It's not so important about what you eat. What's important is who you worship. So worship wholeheartedly and eat whatever comes from the market. I say that to paint a contrast. The angel to the church at Thyatira is not saying the opposite of what Paul said. He's not saying slaughter your own meat, don't eat from the market. He's saying something different. He's saying, 
don't be a part of a ceremony that sacrifices meat to an idol because you're losing your allegiance to the one true God. At the end of this description, we hear a prediction, an ominous one. Jezebel, whoever she is, says the angel, she's going to go through some major suffering and destruction, and so are her children. By implication, maybe some of you are her children. Maybe you've been sucked in by her rationale. There's destruction ahead for those who follow her. That destruction, by the way, is largely what the rest of the book of Revelation is all about. The punishment that comes from God when we do not follow Him completely. So let me make a transition. We don't live in Thyatira. I guarantee you that none of you go to the Kiwanis Club and offer meat sacrificed to idols. Right? It's not our deal. But what do we do? What do we embrace that we might call idolatry? I've got several things to suggest, but before I suggest them, let me tell you this. I made this list for myself, and I'm asking you to listen in. First potential idol is economic security. That was the problem at Thyatira. They needed to stay in the trade guild. They needed business. They couldn't stand to be alienated. They would lose their economic security. What about us? I would suggest that economic security, in terms of a high priority in our lives, is one of the great idols in America. We do anything for it. We'll sell our soul for it. How about a second idol that I'll just call politics? Now, I know this is a touchy subject, but reason with me here just for a moment. No matter which political party you're in, no matter who your candidate is, surely you would agree with this. By the way, I've watched both political conventions. Surely you would agree that at those events, those gatherings, there's a sort of adulation and praise that's heaped upon the candidate. That if you listen, almost rises to the level of deification. Now I know it's politics. They do that so that they can point out the errors of the other. But even in that activity, there's the potential that it becomes a quasi-religious activity. Yeah, there's the potential. I think the real potential. That when we're swept along in that fervor, 
we actually are moving in the direction of unhealthy allegiances, dividing our souls. We feel like without them, our candidate, we're doomed. And with them, it's a talisman. God will bless our nation. I think you'd agree that's a potential idol. I will say this, that if you think that your party or your candidate is perfectly aligned with the kingdom of God, you have a blindfold on. Third potential idol is comfort and luxury. Those two kind of come together as a package, don't they? And again, we do almost anything to have them. I want to... Use comfort and luxury with just one example. Comfort and luxury come with cars. If, if I had the money and I was exceedingly rich, I would never buy a car that didn't have the latest GPS tracking on it and leather seats and climate control of all types I would buy the best. And what happens when I do that? (laughs) Well, I bought the best. I probably wasted some money. And I knelt down to an idol called luxury. That became exceedingly important to me. And before long, I'm kind of almost like worshiping other gods. Or or worse than that, I use that particular idol as my status symbol to make me important. How vain and empty is that? As one author has said, here's what happens. We buy things we don't want to impress people we don't even like, right? Comfort and luxury is potential idol. A third potential idol, or excuse me, fourth is what I'll call recreation and entertainment. Uh. I love sports. I teach sport history at IU. Tuesday and Thursday morning are some of my favorite days. I enjoy it. My daughter is a sports broadcaster. I listen to as many games that she is a part of as I possibly can. If I had the money, I'd probably have a membership to the IU Golf Club. I love sports. But I know, as you do, that sports has become an idol an idol in our American culture. The fifth and final potential idol I want to mention is just popularity. Let me remind you of when you knew it well or reflect back on when you participated in it thoroughly. As a child or as a teenager, you wanted to be with the cool kids. And you found yourself doing almost anything to be associated with them. And before long, that reality became your own reality. Your identity was so wrapped up in popularity that you built your identity on sand with smoke and mirrors and glass. And we still do it, don't we? We bow down to the idol of popularity. Sometimes we might call it fame. 
So what's the conclusion of the matter? There's a remedy, says the angel to the church at Thyatira, for all these idols and whichever ones you have. There's a remedy, and it's very easy. No, very hard, but very simple to articulate. Two things are the remedy. Repent and follow. Repent of the idolatry and turn towards the only true God. That's the remedy. I love a quote from a theologian who said, confessing your sins is sort of like taking out the garbage. Once is not enough. When it comes to repentance, once is not enough. When it comes to the Scripture, which turns a searchlight on our soul and our lives, it calls us to repent and to follow over and over again. And we could get under the weight of repentance and just live morose lives, but that's not what it's all about. To repent and to follow is to repent of sins that have become idolatrous to us and things that ensnare our souls. It's to repent of trying to find our satisfaction in things that don't satisfy. And to follow means to turn to the one true God who does satisfy. So the author says, repent and follow. Idolatry is seductive. But when we follow idols, it's like drinking salt water when we're thirsty. Before long, it dehydrates our souls. So why should we do it? Well, of course, the answer is we shouldn't. What's the alternative? Well, the alternative is to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The alternative is to follow the one who will never leave us or forsake us. Not even until the end of the age. To follow the one who is the pearl of great price, who is worth selling everything for to achieve. To follow the one who's the bread of life, the water of life. To follow the one who will supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. To follow the one who's the only one that can give us eternal life. Singular devotion to Jesus Christ. How foolish to follow idols. Instead, let's surrender ourselves to the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep and gives them eternal life. Will you pray? We thank you, Lord, for turning the searchlight on our souls when we look at Scripture. We thank you for loving us enough to call us to repentance and to follow. Now give us the will to do both. Let us look at our lives and repent of those things that are idols. And let us follow you with a pure heart. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.